Good morning and happy Sunday, my lovelies. Um, I am so excited to talk to you again this week. I do apologize that this is not going up at 11 a.m. Um, I am recording this at 10.36 <laughs> on Sunday instead of my plan to record it yesterday. Um, I actually yesterday woke up and got invited to get tattooed by my partner's brother, who is an incredible tattoo artist, um, and I spent all my day with my boyfriend and his brother with the doing the tattoo um and then we went out to dinner afterwards and by the time I got home it was like oh my god close to midnight um and then I attempted to go to sleep but my neighbors were playing really loud dance music until around three in the morning so I did not get to sleep um and even if I wanted to record this episode it was not going to happen because I was being kept up <laughs> so once again apologies about the uh the time the time that this is being uploaded because as of right now I have no idea how long this is going to take to record hopefully the usual hour um and then it'll go through the whole upload process so I would assume that this will be up around noon if not a little bit after that um if you would prefer to have like a consistent time that this is uploaded and not just like randomly on Sundays you just let me know um you can comment on today's post um about the podcast on Instagram, uh, and yeah, we can we can just pick up from there. I am, you know, really looking forward to today's topic. We're going to be talking about the story behind the portrait of Adele Blochbauer One, um, which was painted by Gustav Klimt, um, and we are going to discuss its restitution efforts um, post-World War II, and this is going to be, I think, for now, the last part in this series about World War II restitution efforts. Um, there are a couple more topics that I want to cover under the umbrella of World War II restitution. I could honestly talk about it for the entirety of this podcast's run, <laughs> but I realize that it's probably better that I... Uh, kind of move on to something else just so that we can keep uh we can keep interest <laughs> and I'm sure after a while people get tired of hearing me babble about the same things so for now we're gonna end this section of the series with the conversation surrounding the portrait of Adele Blockbauer one as an aside, um, my upstairs neighbors are awake right now uh, and as I've mentioned in previous podcasts they are not exactly uh, the quietest upstairs neighbors so um, if you hear any banging or footsteps um, throughout the podcast, I do apologize. Uh, it is not my intention for us to have uh, such a loud background uh, noise throughout the duration of the episode, but there's really only so much I can do, and if I were to attempt to wait for like the perfect opportunity for it to be quiet up there or for them to not be in the house... Um, there's no way this episode would get recorded, so we're just gonna have to grin and bear it, unfortunately, but I do appreciate all the patience, and once again, apologies for any background noise you might hear. You might be thinking to yourself, Erin, how on earth can you dedicate an entire episode to just one painting? Um, well, obviously you've seen that I can talk a lot, so that should answer your question. No, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding about the talking a lot, but <laughs> this portrait and the story surrounding it in my mind, is a perfect encapsulation of what this field can do at the best of times and the ways in which the field struggle, struggles under the worst circumstances. And not just that, but 
when I learned about the portrait of Adele Blochbauer when I was in high school, it was also the first time I was introduced to Gustav Klimt. And Klimt has been my favorite artist since. And I feel kind of silly saying that because I know he's a very popular artist to love. And people are always like, oh my God, you went to school for art history and you don't like somebody more obscure. Like it's so quote unquote, like basic to like these artists. But I think that's kind of silly. You know, you like what you like. Um, And for me, Gustav Klimt is just my favorite um, in terms of the aesthetic value of his artwork. But also there is something to be said about the portrait of Adele Blochbauer and portraits, um, the other portraits that Klimt did of the women in Adele's circle. Like these are all very high class Jewish women being represented beautifully and being represented in a way that really shows um, not only their value as individuals but the things that they cared about as well and I think up until this point with a lot of the anti-semitism that was going on um the reason why Klimt's portraits were seen as degenerate by the Nazis is because they so proudly displayed Jewish women in this like beautiful aesthetic light um and really rendered them as these goddess-like beings and obviously the nazis weren't too happy about that so from like an aesthetic perspective an aesthetic perspective it's a beautiful portrait um and i'm just very drawn to it on a personal level i think the story surrounding this portrait that we're going to get into today not only the story of what happened to the portrait but really Adele's story as well Adele's and her niece um, Maria's story is why the episode is called Girls of Gold because we're going to be speaking both of who Adele was as a person and who her niece Maria Altman was as a person um, and how each of these women are such huge players in this story surrounding cultural restitution post-World War II. I've actually seen the portrait in person, I think, three times now, if not three, then twice. Um, It's currently at Noya Gallery um, in New York City. It's on Museum Mile, if you ever want to go see it. I believe general admission tickets are $40, which I know is quite steep, Um, but if you're a student, you can get in for a reduced rate or free, and if you're a um, museum employee, you can bring your museum ID, um, and you can get in for free with one guest, so so there's a little a little tip for you, a little insider information from when I worked as a museum employee and also when I was a student. <laughs> um, but I've seen the portrait twice and it has been an almost spiritual experience both times. Um, it is nothing, in my opinion, like the photos of it on Google. Um, I feel like the photos on Google really kind of oversaturate the gold leaf and the silver leaf on the portrait so when you actually go and see it in person it's this lovely like lemony buttery yellow like this beautiful pastel yellow color like you can see her veins how detailed um Klimt has painted her veins and her complexion and it's almost hauntingly beautiful but it's also incredibly emotional for me every time that I do go and see her um because I have an acute understanding of what brought the portrait to sit in that gallery. Um, Not only what brought the portrait to this point, but also what happened to Adele, her husband Ferdinand, um, her niece Maria, and all of these players in our story, all of these characters who truthfully are real people, were real people. Um, And 
for me, looking at this portrait is one of those moving moments every time because it's not just like you're looking at Adele, you're looking at everything that went into bringing Adele to a point where her heirs um, were able to finally make decisions about what would be done with her artwork and what would be done with her likeness um, post-World War II. And it's just a fascinating story, so we're going to get into it, but I just wanted to give you the background as to why I'm spending an entire hour chit-chatting with you about a single painting, um, because for me it really is that important to me. And I hope that I do the story of Adele and the story of her family justice for you today. So I'm going to be um, using two books today. They will also be linked in the podcast description as per usual. Um, we're going to be using Lost Lives, Lost Art, Jewish Collectors, Nazi Art Theft, and The Quest for Justice by Melissa Mueller and Monica Tutskow again, um, because they have a really great section dedicated to the story of Adele and Ferdinand Blockbauer. Um, and then we are also going to be using Portrait of Adele Blockbauer by Sophie Lilly and George Gauchuk. I can't. I'm really bad at pronunciation, guys. I'm so sorry. I'm trying really hard to be better about it. Um, and I just actually started retaking my French lessons, so maybe that will stir up um, some better pronunciations on that end. Um, I'm not sure how much it will affect my German uh, speaking, but we can hope. <laughs> this uh, second book, The Portrait of Adele Blockbauer, is actually um, published and edited uh, by Neue Gallery. You can order this off of the Neue Gallery website. Um, which I'll link in the podcast description. It was gifted to me at the end of my internship this summer with a pretty well-established art advisory firm. Um, they knew how much I cared about the uh, the portrait, and so as a thank you gift, they bestowed upon me this beautiful book about Adele. Um, and the book itself is actually quite interesting because it's not just about the portrait. Um, it gives some background about um, what Austria was like pre and post World War II, um, and not only Adele and Ferdinand's families, um, but the families within their most innermost circle, um, and how they knew Klimt. There's a little bit of background on Klimt. There's some information about restitution efforts. Um, I'm gonna be referencing the restitution more so with lost lives and lost art because they go into much more detail about it, um, but. If you would also like some more um, reading material or viewing material, if you're not into reading, um, you can also read The Woman in Gold. Um, it's, it's either The Woman in Gold or The Lady in Gold, which is a book, chapter book, that completely encompasses this whole story. Um, I've read it through like three times now. Uh, it's fantastic. Or you can watch the movie The Woman in Gold with Ryan Reynolds and Helen Mirren. Um, that gives... A more uh, overview of what happened with this portrait. Uh, it's a it's a pretty good movie in my opinion. I know that some people would probably disagree and be like, oh, it's not all that interesting, but I really like it, especially because I'm a pretty big fan of Helen Mirren, and also who doesn't love Ryan Reynolds, right? So those are the materials we're going to use today. Um, I would honestly recommend any book about Adele off of Noya Gallery's bookstore website, so I will also just leave a link in the podcast for their bookstore if you're just interested in um, reading any more about uh, post-World War II restitution efforts. 
So Adele is born to two Southern German parents um, who moved to Vienna in the 1880s. Her father's name is Moritz Bauer, um, and he comes from the Bavarian town of Butenweisen. Um, Butenweisen, I believe, between it's, the book says between 18. Um, 11 and 1812, the Jewish population accounted for 65% of Butenweisen's total population of 543, and her mother, Jeanette Hönisch, um, is from nearby Augsburg. Augsburg? Um, and they are considered to be, the Bowers are seen as a very prominent family of Butenweisen. Um, they're very well respected, and when they move to Vienna, that respect follows them, um, and they are known to be a very affluent, very well-to-do family. Adele is born on August 9th of 1881. Um, she is Moritz and Jeanette's youngest child, um, and she's actually born in a western suburb of Vienna. She's not born in Vienna. Um, she's born in Hütteldorf, which is where um, her family spent their summers, and then they eventually bring her into Vienna after the summer months, but she's actually born outside of Vienna, um, and I just thought that was really interesting. <laughs> The Bowers eventually um, moved to Vienna's most famous street, not prob maybe not the most famous, but in my reading, one of the most famous, um, Ringstrasse proper, um, and they end up getting a home there, and some of their neighbors include the Herzig and Pinnels family, Pinnels, Pinnels, um, which who are both eminent patrons of the Weiner Werkstätte. Um, and so Adele's encounters with these contemporary art figures, these philosophers, and people who are patrons of the arts as a whole comes from a very young age. Um, and her family also values art and teaches her about the value of art from pretty much her childhood onward. So from her younger years forward, she is always very interested in art, very interested in education, philosophy, deep intellectual conversations, um, and she is known to be, out of uh, the Bowers' children, one of the most precocious. She is always very curious um, and always very apt to want to do plays in front of um, guests that her parents are having over, um, and she's super talented, a very multifaceted young woman, um, a bit of a spitfire, and definitely um, gave her parents a run for their money from a very young age. Adele, unfortunately, um, had a lot of tragedy at a young age, which is cited in this book. Um, they say that um, Raphael, the family's oldest child, had left Vienna to become a banker in New York. The four Bauer brothers who remained in Austria were not to survive long. In 1897, the year Adele turned 16, Carl succumbed to pneumonia at 26, shortly after completing his law degree. In 1905, only weeks after the death of their father, her brother Leopold died in Brussels at the age of 37 of insanity, which is often a euphemism for syphilis. The youngest brother, David, died in 1911 at the age of 32 in Bortigera, a small town nestled between San Remo and Monaco. Um on the Italian Riviera, followed four years later by the death of Eugen, the last remaining male bower of tuberculosis at the age of 46. Um, so her childhood very much just filled with tons of tragedy. Um, Eugen had served in his professional life as the director general of the Bohemian Birkbau Aktiengesellschaft and was one of the only brothers to have children. Oh, he was the only 
one of the Bradleys to have children. Um, his two daughters were Marie and her youngest sister, Bettina, who was a talented artist that would later marry the well-known painter and sculptor, George Ehrlich. So, um, it, her childhood was obviously very tumultuous, um, and as a result, she suffered a great deal very young, um, and I could only imagine the kind of heartbreak that she had to endure um, and had to learn to cope with from such a young age, and so I think that really shapes Adele's um, outlook on the world in the future, but it doesn't stop her from being tenacious and curious, and she is known in accounts from her friends from from her, like, very young years into the point that she dies, um, that she was just all around somebody that people enjoyed being around. So on December 19th of 1899, um, Adele marries Ferdinand Bloch, and he was 17 years her senior, um, and her oldest sister, Therese, also known as Thetty, um, was actually married the previous year to his brother, Gustav. So Gustav and Ferdinand Bloch marry Adele and Thetty Bauer. Um, and because the Bauer line um, had died off in 1915 with the deaths of her siblings, um, with her brothers, Ferdinand and Gustav actually, in a show of solidarity to their wives, decide to hyphenate their names and that's why Adele is known as Adele Blochbauer um, because both men felt that it was the right thing to do and the honorable thing to do to kind of um, honor their fam their wives' families and hyphenate their names so that they would all have uh, the same last name. The Bloch family um, is one full of sugar magnates. Um, they deal in sugar, that's their business, they do very well in it, um, and Ferdinand is one of six children, the youngest, born on July 16th, 1864. Um, he also has quite a bit of tragedy. Um, three of his six siblings die um, prior to World War II. Gustav, Thetty's husband, dies during the 1938 Anschluss, and then Ferdinand himself passes away um, two months after. I believe it's two months after. We will we'll cover that in a little bit after World War II ends. So he is the only one of the six children that makes it um, past World War II, and as a result, he suffers quite a bit um, because Adele dies way prior to World War II occurring. Um, so, unfortunately, the later years of his life are spent in quite a bit of misery, um, but the time period prior to World War II, um, when him and Adele were really, you know, at the beginning of their marriage, um, and she was healthy and he was healthy, was a beautiful time and is recorded to be a beautiful time and they had a lot of fun together. They really valued art and we're going to get into that in a little bit. So Gustav and Thetty um, are the mother and father of Carl, Robert, Leopold, Luis, and Maria. Um, and Maria Altman is who we're going to reference later. That's Adele's niece. Um, they all live together um, for a period of time as, like, one big family. Um, Ferdinand and Gustav's families live together, and all of the children note that Adele was, like, a second mother to them. They were very close with her, um, and she herself had two, um, pregnancies. One, I believe, that ended in stillbirth, and another that the, um, baby died 
only shortly after being born. Um, so she was really close with her nieces and nephews. She viewed them as her own children as well. And so um, when Maria speaks at her testimony um, later on that we'll discuss, she does talk about how close she was with her aunt and her uncle. She does talk about remembering seeing the Klimps that we will speak about in their household and how art was really valued by both families um, and how they lived together in this kind of community um, prior to World War II, very happy and very much so relying on one another and happy to live together. Maria's last name is Altman um, because in 1937 she marries Fritz Altman, who is an aspiring famous opera singer, um, and that Gustav and Ferdinand attend her wedding. Um, at this point, Adele has already passed on, um, but everyone at this time in high society describes Maria and Fritz's wedding as the last wedding before the Anschluss, which Gustav will be killed in the next year. While the Bowers and the Blocks were both high society, they came from two different worlds. Um, the Bower family was very much invested in banking, um, and they did really well in the field, and so that's why so many of the sons then went and traveled outside to the U.S. and Canada before their passing, um, because they were very much invested in growing their family business. Whereas on the Block side, Ferdinand's father, David Block, was an entrepreneur within the sugar industry, um, more of a self-made man. Um, and so although they were both high society families, um, David Bloch, Ferdinand Bloch's father, their family was more newer money. Um, and both families really did value art and were really invested and committed to helping the arts and allowing the art field to grow in any way they could by being patrons. Despite being the youngest, um, because of all of the deaths in the families and for each of the siblings who survived their different um, career paths, Ferdinand actually became the one who took over their sugar empire um, after his father's death in 1892. Um, and with that wealth, he ended up investing um, a lot of their family-owned business into large corporation stock, which is ultimately what allowed it to grow. And I'm giving you all this background information just so you could understand and um, where the uh, the Blockbauers were situated in society, how they came to know Gustav Klimt, and um, the kind of contributions they made to Vienna as a whole um, before their family was completely demolished with World War II. Following World War One, on December first of nineteen nineteen. Adele and Ferdinand um, end up purchasing a house at the corner of the Elisabethstrasse and Schillerplatz, um, which is then known as the Palace or Palace Blockbauer. Um, and this becomes a hub for activity. Um, their house is full of art. Adele is constantly inviting in scholars and philosophers and people of all sorts of backgrounds to sit in her salons um, with her other high-to-do friends and to discuss, you know, questions surrounding life and questions about people's research that were there and artists that they all knew and their ideas about art. And it became not only a home for Ferdinand and Adele, but also a home in which they could host their friends and their family and really invest in the kind of um, fields that they were both really, really passionate about, which was to do with art and philosophy. This townhouse um, is also connected to the Ringstrasse, and um, interestingly enough, it is also the townhouse that is across 
from the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna, the same Academy of Fine Arts that Hitler would be rejected from years later. Um, and so when Hitler goes into Austria and, you know, moves past um, the Academy of Fine Arts, and he, I think, if I remember correctly, he tours the Academy of Fine Arts after they um, take over Austria. He is mere steps away from the Blockbauer townhouse, um, which is why it becomes quickly an easy target for them to loot, um, because the family is so prominent and so well-known, Ferdinand is almost immediately put on a list during World War II, and, um, noted to be a very famous, um, very wealthy Jewish man amongst the circles of high elites, um, and that is why his home, um, is targeted very quickly. To give you an idea of um, the kind of circles that Ferdinand and Adele ran in, um, some of the visitors to their home included, as the book states, intellectuals, politicians, and artists were frequent guests at their home. Among them, the widow of Gustav Mahler, Alma, and her third husband, the, uh, the author Fran Franz Werfel? <laughs> who lived a few houses further down on Elisabethstrasse, the composer Richard Strauss and his wife Pauline, as well as the writer Berta Zuckerkandl. Um, other close associates were the physician Julius Tandler, a pioneer of social reform and a long-serving city councillor of Vienna's social democratic municipal government in the 1920s and early 1930s. Um, popularly referred to as Red Vienna, as well as the pragmatic socialist Karl Renner, the chancellor of the First Austrian Republic and the first president of Austria after 1945. So it was a bustle of really well-to-do people, really intelligent people, people who are passionate in their fields. And in a lot of ways, a lot of young Jewish people coming together and sharing their interests, sharing their time, and really, you know, valuing, valuing each other's company. This is also the um, environment that Maria Altman grows up in, because they are constantly in the house, um, and so she is also constantly exposed to all of these great minds of the time who look to her aunt and uncle as equally great minds and respect them. And so not only do, does um, Gustav and Thetty's children have this kind of deep admiration and love for their aunt and uncle, they also really look up to them and value them because they can see consistently... Um, how well they are received by all of these incredibly important people in their lives. So, um, I also want to note here what an impressive woman Adele was in her own right, and I'm actually going to read directly from the text again for this portion, because I think it's important to understand that as a woman, Adele was denied a lot of opportunities, and so even though she craved education and learning and was incredibly smart and curious, it was not really recognized by society as a whole because she was a woman and they didn't see the value in educating women. And so Adele writes to her nephew Robert in 1921, if fate has given me friends who are intellectually and ethically exceptional, 
I attribute these friendships to but one of my qualities, ruthless self-criticism. I always was and will remain my own harshest judge. Her words are evidence of both her struggle for self-improvement and her lack of complacency with regard to her own privileges. As a woman, she had been denied a university education. Instead, she pursued a disciplined regime of self-education, seeking out the company of artists and intellectuals. Adele shunned popular taste, attuning her sensibilities to the more subtle aesthetics of Vienna's fin de siècle, Sickle, sickle, I can never pronounce it, I'm sorry, and its highly evocative preoccupation with the conditions of the human psyche. Adele personified many of the contradictions of her generation, which was on the cusp of modernity. Entrenched though she was in the traditions and privileges of her class, she advocated for social reform, workers' education, and women's suffrage, and supported both the Kinderfreunde, the leading socialist organization for children, which maintained schools and orphanage, Orphanages and the Breitschaft, an association affiliated with the Freemasons dedicated to social reform issues. She was separated from her Jewish roots, declaring herself non-denominational. She chose to be cremated upon her death at the time a boldly defiant act, stemming from the belief that rationality should replace religion. Most significantly, Adele revered the artist Gustav Klimt, who, under the banner of Vienna's secession, defended the freedom of art against conventions of the academy. This keen commitment to social and cultural renewal, coupled with the enormous financial resources, helped establish Adele and Ferdinand Blochbauer as formidable patrons of the arts. So, Adele was, you know... She was a spitfire. She was not to be messed with. Um, She understood that she was not going to have access to things that men would. So she tried to carve a way out for her to have access to those things through her own home and by meeting all of these people. Um, And her separating herself from her Jewish heritage is also really interesting to me um, because her Jewish heritage was such a integral part of who she was as a child and the family that she lived in. Um, And so her cremation really did send waves through her community when that was done because a lot of her more um, committed to the religion, Jewish friends and family, were kind of shocked by this. Um, But Adele was not one to follow tradition, to just follow rules because someone set them there for her. She was very much someone who wanted to define things for herself in her own time, in her own learning experience. Um, And Maria even mentions, is quoted mentioning in this book, that there were times where she stood very aloof and very um, opposite of the children. Like, although her nieces and nephews, like, admired her and loved her and Gustav dearly, Um, Adele herself was quite introverted at times. Um, She was a chain smoker. She was a deep thinker and she did not always want to socialize and interact. Um, And it's really interesting that Maria notes this as one of those really inherent personality features of her aunt. Um, And it kind of gives us this inside view of how much Adele wanted to strive to meet these people to have access to this information that she couldn't get access to without an education, but also then battled against her own introvertedness and really just wanted to be left alone at times um, and to be given the space to allow her mind to roam free. Ferdinand, prior to marrying Adele, um, was a huge art collector, and then after marrying her, they 
really expanded their joint collection further. Um, and Klimt's works are known to be the dominating works within their collection. Um, he commissioned two large portraits of his wife. The first one, the portrait of Adele Blochbauer one, which is the one that is subject of this episode, that was finished in 1907. Um, and then portrait of Adele Blochbauer two, which was completed in 1912. The 1907 portrait um, is indicative of the peak of Klimt's golden era. Um, and then the 1912 portrait two um, is a reflection of Klimt's move away from the golden era into his Japanese era, um, which is where he was focusing on aesthetics from Japan, um, color palettes from Japan, and different stylistic choices that were being reflected in Japanese art from ancient times as well as modern times. So the two portraits themselves, although both very beautiful representations of Adele at two different points in her life, are stark contrast to one another and show two different versions of Adele almost with the stylistic choices taken and um, I am going to probably include in this week's Instagram post photos of both of the portraits just so that you can see the way in which they look different. Something I appreciate about this book actually is that they mention something that isn't often touched upon when we talk about the restitution of the portraits of Adele Blockbauer. Ferdinand also owned four other Klimt's. He owned four Klimt landscapes. So the first that he owned was the Birch Forest or Beach Forest from 1903, Kammer Castle on the Atizé 3, 1910, Apple Tree 1 from 1912, and Houses in Unterach on the Atizé 1915. Um, and they were actually acquired from Klimt's estate. Um, so he... Ferdinand acquired them after Klimt's death um, because both Klimt and Adele died prior to Ferdinand. So with that being said, the Blockbauers are in history considered to be one of um, Klimt's most important patrons. Um, the other two important patrons that they note in this book are August and Serena Lederer and Victor and Paula Zuckerkandl. Um, actually, if you are interested and you are nearby the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, Klimt's portrait of Serena Lederer is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's a beautiful, skinny, vertical portrait of her in a stunning gossamer white gown, and it's contrasted by her beautiful black hair. Um, it's also got this kind of haunting quality to it, um, and I would highly, highly recommend seeing it in person if you can. Um, also to be noted is that Ferdinand acquired um, Amelie Zuckerkandl's uh, unfinished portrait from Klimt's estate after his passing. So Klimt actually starts painting the portrait of Adele Blochbauer in 1903. Its original purpose is for it to be a anniversary gift for her parents. Um, and actually, all of the children were going to be in on it. They were not going to... Um, it was not going to, as far as I know, just be a portrait of Adele. It was going to be a different kind of family portrait that they commissioned from Klimt. Um, but then it ended up taking too long for it to be made because it was completed in 1907 and started in 1903, so about four years. Um, and they were like, we're not, we're not giving, <laughs> we're not going to bother giving this uh, to our parents. And so Ferdinand ended up just taking the commission for himself to have this beautiful portrait of his wife. Um, and actually Klimt is, starts the painting process of Adele's portrait after um, 
visiting uh, Ravenna in northern Italy, and he ended up going to the San Vitale Basilica, where he studied um, mosaics there, which can be kind of seen, um, the heavy influence of that can be seen in Adele's portrait. Also something to note is that Klimt's father was a goldsmith, um, and so a master goldsmith, if I remember correctly. And so Klimt's experience around gold happened from a very young age. Klimt also was born into a family of many children. I believe it was anywhere between eight and 11 children, and he was the oldest. Um, and so he was very much so used to providing for his family and very acutely aware of his father's work life. Um, he assisted his father prior to going to school for art and subsequently taking on art as a profession. And so the influence of his childhood in being around lots of gold and then going to the basilica and being inspired by the mosaics and you know like mosaics of um Justinian's wife Theodora from the Byzantine period and really kind of looking at gold as this sort of otherworldly heavenly material is reflected in the way he then goes about painting Adele and adding all of that gold leaf and silver leaf to her portrait that is what it's known for. So once again, for anybody who hasn't seen this portrait, I'm going to read directly from the book to give you a visual, a better visual um, than me just kind of stumbling through the best way to describe this amazing, magnificent, magnificent piece. Um, so it says, the abundance of gold and silver leaf imparts an almost shrine-like aura to the painting, not unlike the treatment of Empress Theodora in Ravenna's San Vitale, only Adele's face and hands are exposed, her body is cloaked in gold to ennoble and perhaps shield the sitter from a curious audience. The contours of the chair on which Adele sits, as if on a throne, are barely distinguishable. Her delicately rendered face stands out from amid this wealth of ornament, as if superimposed on a two-dimensional plane. The effect is reminiscent of photo montage. It's detached, it's detached quality reiterated by a choker around Adele's neck that seems to dissect her head from her upper torso. Um, it's really interesting too because I did not, I've written so many papers about this piece. I have read about it. I have digested it. <laughs> I have raked my eyes over it a million times and it wasn't until the second or third time that I saw the painting in person that I finally noticed the throne. And I was like, damn, this has been here this entire time. I have been staring at this for so long that I completely missed this massive part of the piece. Um, so if you are to look at it after this episode, which I highly recommend you do, maybe you're looking at it right now while we're talking, um, really look for the piece. Um, something that I do also want to mention here is that the necklace on Adele in this portrait actually had a really interesting fate. It was worn by Maria at her wedding to Fritz Altman um, in 1937, and her um, Ferdinand, her uncle, let her borrow it for the occasion. Um, and after the family's home was ransacked by Nazis during World War II, that very necklace gets sent to Hermann Goering's wife, and there is actual footage and photographs of her wearing it to an opera in Germany. So the 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 choker necklace that Adele is wearing in this portrait will later fall into Nazi hands and appear on the neck of a top Nazi official enjoying an opera in the middle of World War II. And that story in and of itself is just, has always been so wild to me and just so crazy. 
Um, so yeah, I would highly recommend looking up those photos, um, if you are interested in seeing what the necklace may have looked like in person. Now as we move into the fate of what happened to this beautiful family and this equally beautiful portrait, I would like to note that Ferdinand Blockbauer and Adele Blockbauer were huge patrons and major benefactors of the Belvedere Museum in Vienna. Um, he was one of the founding members and sponsors of the association that was established in 1912 to support the modern gallery within the Belvedere, um, within their contemporary collection. And in 1919, the book states, Ferdinand donated the generous sum of 5,000 crowns to fund the museum's purchase of Klimt's Medicine, 1901. One of four panels represented the faculties of the Universität Wien, which is the University of Vienna. Fun fact, um, I actually have Hygieia medicine tattooed on my um, body. I have an art history sleeve, and that piece I actually have on my upper left bicep, um, and I chose to do that because those pieces would su subsequently be destroyed by the Nazis during World War II. Um, I did deliberate for some time getting tattooed the portrait of Adele Blockbauer, but one, I don't know if um, I could ever have it done justice, um, and two, given the storied history of this portrait and, like, the deep, intimate ways in which the family suffered so greatly during World War II, for me, it felt kind of, I don't want to say inappropriate, but just, like, I just felt weird about getting her tattooed on me, um, as much as I adore and love the story of this portrait and, like, the victory of it returning back to its rightful heirs, um, I ended up choosing to go with Hygieia, um, off of the University of Vienna paintings because it still is a, um, a symbol of my research because those paintings were destroyed during World War II and Klimt's works were, um, you know, kind of far-flung and then brought back to rightful owners where they could be, and so I felt like it was the more appropriate of the pieces to get tattooed, and I also just um, really adore the piece. I used it a couple, I think it was last week, to do one of the Instagram stories you might have noticed. It's the, it's the portrait of the woman that actually kind of looks a little bit like Adele, which is a whole separate conversation that could be said um, about how many of uh, Gustav's women looked like Adele in his paintings. Um, she's holding a snake and she's kind of covered in this red and gold uh, sort of shawl type dress and she's holding this golden snake that's drinking out of a dish in her hand and she's got these beautiful golden flowers and red kind of tendril tentacles coming out of her hair. It's really beautiful and I would highly recommend looking up. Um, it's known as the medicine panel from the University of Vienna by Gustav Klimt. So yeah, back on topic, um, Ferdinand donates a lot of money to the Belvedere. Um, he is, you know, helping them with a ton of stuff for a period of time. Um, he ends up, um, being a private sponsor and he also does a long-term loan with them of a bunch of the Klimps. And so for a period of time, the Klimps that we're talking about are actually loaned to the Belvedere by Ferdinand and Adele, um, and they would ultimately fall into the hands of the Belvedere again, but under much messier circumstances. But it is really interesting to know that at a time, Ferdinand and Adele, like, very happily were like, yeah, of course, we'll, we'll loan these climps to you for public view. That's fine. 
so that um, loan actually takes place in 1919, um, and they keep them for like a couple of years. They return sometime in the early 1920s, but um, it's the Adele portraits and the four landscapes. So they're like jewels of their collection are on long-term loan um, to the Belvedere. And the people that see them in person go crazy for them. Like the Belvedere at this time in the early 1920s recognizes just like how important these pieces are, not only because they're Klimt's and Klimt has now passed. He passed on my birthday, actually, February 6th, 1908. Um, and this is now 1920s. And so it's been quite some time. The museum recognizes the value of these portraits. They give them back to the Blockbauers, but there is a um, mention that they would like to acquire them at some point for their permanent collection. And Ferdinand and Adele are like, yeah, that's nice. Like maybe eventually, because they are huge benefactors, patrons of this museum, then they like do give quite a lot to this museum. But there at the time, they're just like, yeah, like we completely will consider it. But as of right now, like th these are ours. We're happy with them. We're happy to loan them to you, um, but like they are a prized possession, so we're not going to be selling them or giving them away anytime soon. So um, Adele dies actually in 1925 at 43, and she dies of meningitis, um, and she leaves Ferdinand as her sole heir. Um, and this is the point, like we were talking earlier, they are childless. They had one baby that was born, stillborn, and then the second one died a few days um, within being born. Um, and in her last will and testament, which this is a huge, huge part of the subsequent restitution case that happens many, many years later, she, but she pens a will, um, following the death of her mother two years prior to her own death. And the book states, Adele bequeathed money to the Kinderfreunde and the Breitschaft and left her library to the Volksheim's Autokring, a school for adult education that held art shows. Finally, Adele requested that Ferdinand leave Klimt's portraits and the four landscapes to the Belvedere upon his death, not without submitting to the probate court that he and not his wife now own the paintings and thus clarifying that he had no legal obligation to do so, Ferdinand faithfully pledged to fulfill Adele's wishes. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I know it's probably a little bit confusing, but essentially, um, in legal terms, Ferdinand was the one that commissioned the portraits. He paid for the portraits. And so even though they were shared by the couple, in legal terms, Ferdinand owned them. When Adele passed, she asked that he, um, give them to the Belvedere upon his death. He agrees to this, but this is the integral part of the, um, arguments surrounding the portraits. They were not hers to give. By law, he owned them. Even with her will, um, she did not technically have the say in where they would go. Um, and so he kind of, like, doesn't fully realize at this moment that they're now his paintings because he became, per her will, the sole heir. So not only did he, was he the one that purchased them, but he per the prior request in her will, became the sole heir. So she technically doesn't have the ability to bequeath them unless he agrees to it, which at this time he does. That will later change. What's also really sad is that they all of these Klimps were in a room in their house that was known as the Klimt Simmer or the Klimt Room, um, and he leaves that room untouched, essentially as a shrine to Adele. 
Um, and it's an incredible, the room itself also has other, um, pieces by Klimt's, um, apprentice, Aegon Shela. Um, and so there are, it becomes this shrine, it becomes this memorial to Adele. Um, and it also is a really incredible showcase of all of this, um, Viennese secession artwork that was so popular, um, during the time that uh, Klimt was painting and his um, peers were painting in Vienna. So um, this is where things get really tumultuous. Uh, Ferdinand flees Vienna on the eve of Hitler's annexation of Austria on March 12, 1938. At the time, um, Gustav and Thetty, Maria and Louise, all of the children, um, that his nieces and nephews, stay um, in Austria when Ferdinand flees, and the Nazis waste no time in targeting Ferdinand, um, because he is Austria's, one of Austria's leading Jewish industrialists, and so they target him immediately. Um, so on April 27, 1938, the Nazis filed criminal charges against Ferdinand for evasion of income and corporation taxes in the years 1927 to 1937, an excess of 260,000 Reichsmarks, and issued a security order shortly thereafter. In the fall of 1938, the Austrian Internal Revenue Office impounded Ferdinand's entire property to secure alleged tax debts, which had by then skyrocketed to 700,000 Reichsmarks. Um, obviously, Ferdinand is not there um, to defend his property because he flees for his life because he knows what could happen. Um, he already, leading up to this point, Maria says... Um, like when she is recounting about what she remembers from Austria at this time, because her and Fritz got married in 1937, Austria is annexed in 1938, so they are very young, and like they, she recalls later on in life in interviews that she gave that like they could see the mounting um, hatred and anti-Semitism that was appearing in Austria leading up to the annexation, and following the annexation, like the Austrian public was particularly awful to Jewish citizens. Like, that's why Maria Altman is quoted as saying, like, the Austrians, like, welcomed Hitler in with open arms because she, as a young Jewish woman, watched her family suffer under house arrest. They were put under house arrest. She watched her uncle flee. Um, and she also witnessed all of the artwork, all of the possessions that Ferdinand owned, um, be taken into custody by the Nazis and then distributed amongst Nazi higher-up officials. And then they came to Maria and, um, her family's home where her father, Gustav, and her mother, Thetty, um, were still living, where she was living with, um, her husband, Fritz, and Fritz would actually subsequently be brought to a concentration camp, and then he was able to get out of the concentration camp, um, and she was there, and he was there when their, um, possessions were taken out of their home by Nazi officials, so she watched, like, all of these art, all these art pieces, all of these cultural possessions, all of these family heirlooms be taken out and one by one and be valued in front of them by Nazi officials in Austria, and the Austrian, um, Nazis also 
made quite a few comments that are on record to the family and are seen in the paperwork that the uh, Nazis wrote, that they presumed that there was no way for them to get access to all the items that they had that were like, of beautiful quality because they were like, these Jewish people couldn't possibly have all of these beautiful um, pieces of art and pieces of like, like um, Gustav played, I believe it was the cello. Um, and so like they took his cello, which was like his life's joy, um, and the Nazi officials were saying that, like, even if they were rich, there were no way that they, as, they, as Jewish, um, people could own such beautiful treasures. And so, like, once again, severe, heavy, heavy, heavy anti-Semitism. And the homes of the Blockbauer clan are just absolutely ransacked by uh, Nazi officials. Um, and they are almost immediately hunted as Jewish people. And the Nazi regime at the time is just looking for any opportunity to take the family into custody fully and send them to concentration camps, which is why Ferdinand flees. Um, Gustav and Fetty refuse to go. Um, they don't want to go. And so Maria and Fritz end up hatching an escape plan through a, um, I believe, like a favor that her father's family, Gustav's family friend, um, needed them to do. And they ended up fleeing to America um, by the skin of their teeth, and they left Gustav and Thetty there because they couldn't leave because Gustav got very sick and he did not want to leave, um, and they ended up passing um, in Austria, and Maria and Fritz never saw them again. Um, they did not, Maria herself did not return to Austria until, she did not return to Vienna until um, the restitution case was in full swing in the 90s. So she left somewhere in the 40s, I'd have to look up when, and then did not return until she absolutely had to um, in the uh, 1990s. And that was also a great, um, a great struggle for her because she had said and is on record saying that she would never return because of what they did to her and her family. Um, and the trip to Austria is noted by her lawyer, um, Randy Schoenberg, as being Schoenberg as being very difficult for her um, because it was just reopening all of this trauma. She was returning to the place where she last saw her family alive and never to see them again alive. And so obviously it was an incredibly traumatic experience. And so the actual restitution process also yielded a lot of trauma for the heirs of um, Adele Blockbauer and Ferdinand Blockbauer and Gustav Blockbauer and Thetty Blockbauer. So we're going to read um, directly from the book for this section. So on January 28, 1939, museum officials entered the Palace Blockbauer to inspect the art collection. Among them were Leopold Ruprecht, the curator of arms and armor of the Kunsthistorische Museum, Julius Schlossler, the museum's former director, Richard Ernst, the erstwhile author of the Blockbauer porcelain monograph, as well as Waltraud Oberwalder and Josef Zeichen, representing the, the Zentralstil für Denkmalschutz, the monument's office. The majority of the artworks were subsequently placed on the Reichslist, a central reg registry of Austrian cultural heritage, um, Austrian cultural treasures that were barred from export. Um, so most senior Nazi officials and institutions scrambled to secure some portion of the loot from the Blockbauer's collection for Hitler's um, Führer's Reserve, and that included many of the Waldmüller portraits that um, the Blockbauer's owned. Shortly following this, um, Erich Führer, 
is put in charge of the Blockbauer's um, collection as the um, Nazi head for figuring out the process of um, getting them out and into the German public. So, attending to the expropriation process, appointed as the Blockbauer's legal representative, was a lawyer with the oddly appropriate name Eric Fuhrer. Fuhrer was a vehement anti-Semite and a veteran of the Ostmarks Kurisch Burschenschaft, the Nazis' leading university fraternity. Fuhrer had entered the Nazi party as early as June 1932 and remained a prominent member throughout the years of the Nazi party, was banned in Austria from 1933 to 1938. He had served as defense counsel for Otto Planeta and Franz Holzweber, the instigators of the failed Nazi Putsch of, 19, of July 1934. As well as for many other Nazis charged with illegal political activity, he himself served a six-month sentence in Waldersdorf internment camp. Immediately following the Anschluss, Führer's notoriety secured his promotion to the rank of SS Hauptsturmführer and his election as vice president of Vienna's Bar Association. Um, so this is the man that is in charge of the Blockbauer estate um, after all the Blockbauers that were still living had fled um, or had been killed by the Nazis. Um, and even though he knew of Adele's um, 1923 will that she stated that she wanted the um, Klimps to go to the Belvedere after Ferdinand's death, Fear goes on to sell the golden portrait of Adele, so a portrait of Adele Blockbauer one, an apple tree one to the Belvedere in 1941. Um, in 1942, Führer brokered the sale of birch forest to the Staatstische um, Samlungen, and in the following year, he sold Ad Adele Blockbauer II to the Belvedere. All four paintings handled by Führer were presented in the 1943 Klimt retrospective at the Belvedere, commemorating the 80th anniversary of the artist's birth. The show was held in the former Secession Building. So we are literally in the middle of World War II at the point that this retrospective at the Secession Building takes place. This is 1943. Um, and it is said that from here, they realize that some of the paintings that they've acquired from the Blockbauer collection, specifically the portraits of Adele that are going to be in this exhibition retrospective, um, clearly show by Adele's last name um, being Blockbauer that she is of Jewish descent and so to fix this in their eyes um, they change it to Adele 1 um, but in the catalog it's known as portrait of a lady against gold background and Adele 2 as lady standing um, so this moment is so powerful right because at this point they've they've run the family out of Austria. The family that is still alive, or was still alive, Gustav and Fetty, are killed in the Anschluss. Um, there is nobody there to claim ownership, of, rightful ownership now, of these pieces. And they realize, at this retrospective, that they can't let it be known that the people that they stole from were Jewish, and that the people in these portraits are Jewish. Um, and so they do their last bit of Aryanization in this moment, and they just strip Adele of her Jewish identity entirely. And they make her this anonymous woman in gold, lady standing. Um, and it's just, it's horrifying. And it, it perfectly illustrates what the Nazis were doing. It wasn't just about, you know, erasing heritage. It's about erasing people. And that's on any level that they can manage. And so... 
from concentration camps to erasing Adele's identity in this moment, in this portrait of her, they want to ensure that, like, no Jewish person is revered or honored in any way in their regime. Um, And especially because um, Adele and Ferdinand were such high society members in Austrian society, in Jewish Austrian society, this, this point is even more like venomous because they were targeted for that reason as well. They were targeted not only because they were Jewish, but because they were well-to-do. And Hitler hated the fact that these Jewish families were doing so well, were so respected in society, he wanted none of that. And so like they were targeted not only because they were Jewish, but because that they were doing well for themselves too. And once again, this stripping of the name, this running the family out, this literally murdering the, murdering the family amongst the other millions of Jewish people they murdered. Um, it's all purposeful. It's all, all of it has the intention of just complete erasure. Um, and it's from that large scale to this quote-unquote small scale of simply changing her name, it has an even larger impact because by changing the portrait's name, you just completely just destroy the cultural identity of these people. You've now taken their cultural identity, their cultural property, but now you've completely erased their cultural identity as a whole. The whole thing is just very indicative of the larger Nazi plan at hand at this time and is really showing um, just how far they'll go to hide Jewish origin and to just destroy Jewish origin as a whole. At this time, um, Ferdinand has escaped to Czechoslovakia, um, and then he takes refuge in a residence near Prague. Um, in the fall of 1938, because Hitler is going to enter Czechoslovakia, um, Ferdinand ends up going to France, um, until around September 1939, um, where he realizes that he cannot stay in France because they're going to enter France next. Um, and so he ends up going, moving again, um, fleeing again to Switzerland, um, where he lives in a hotel in Zurich. Um, and then he dies, um, in that hotel in Zurich on November 13th, 1945, at the age of, um, 81. He died alone, having renounced all previous wills three weeks earlier and naming his heirs as the three children of his brother, Gustav, Louise Gutmann, Maria Altman, and Robert Bentley, the surviving heirs. Um, and since his entire property had been ransacked and liquidated by the Nazis, Ferdinand left his nieces and nephews no more than a share in whatever might be recovered in the future. For the next decades, the three siblings would devote themselves to restoring their uncle's stolen fortune. Um, so... Ferdinand's end of Ferdinand's life is just, it's devastating. You know, like, he deeply loved Adele. He deeply loved his family. The Blockbauers were very tight-knit, as has been stated a million times in this podcast episode so far, very well respected. Like, he was living a good life, and then he ended up, he ended up displaced from his home, not knowing what happened to his family, but assuming that most of them had died. His wife had died many years earlier now. At this point, she had died in 1925, we're at 1945, so 20 years prior, and he has no access to them, he has no way to communicate with them, he has no idea where most of his nieces and nephews are. He doesn't, I don't even know if at this point he knows that his brother was killed in the Anschluss. Um, and he, he writes, um, In Vienna and Bohemia, they stripped me of everything. Not a single keepsake remains. Blockrauer wrote to Kokoschuka? 
I cannot pronounce the name, again, in 1941. Perhaps I will get the two paintings of my poor wife and my own portrait. I should find out this week. Otherwise, I am completely impoverished and may be able to lead a modest life for a couple of years if one can call killing time living. So, this letter is written and then he dies. That's written in 1945 and he dies like three months later. So, it's just Ferdinand's end is such a sad one because he died without the knowledge of if any of his family was still alive. He died without his wife. He died without all his worldly possessions. Like, everything he worked for, everything he loved is just gone. And he also died in Zurich, not in, like, Vienna, which he loved so dearly and identified as, like, his home place. Like, the place in which he called, like, his birthplace, his the place that he loved, and, like, all the people he loved in it. So, Ferdinand's end is also another example of just like the horrors of this war and the way in which people just suffered so greatly even after it was quote unquote over. So post-World War II, um, Luis, Robert, and Maria kind of start the process of trying to find all of their family stolen property. So they end up employing a young lawyer known as Gustav Rinisch, um, who was a friend of Ferdinand's nephew, Robert, um, from his university days, and they asked him to pursue the restitution claims. Uh, this turns up not much. Um, the search for the artworks from the Blockbauer collection was facilitated to some degree by the mandatory registration of seized property by various individuals and museums um, pursuant to the law on the registration of assets seized in connection with the Nazis' rise to power. Objects that had been designated for Hitler's museum in Linz were achieved from the American Allies' Munich collecting point and were restored to Austria by the U.S. military administration. Um, that's a really important point. So when Allied forces got everything they had to send it somewhere they didn't go through the process at these collecting points of like finding different families and returning them the whole purpose was where was this prior so where can it be sent to um and so like anything that they knew was from austria got sent to the austrian government not and then the austrian government just like all the other european governments like all the other european countries were was tasked with then returning these items to their rightful owners Obviously, that did not happen in a lot of cases, and a lot of countries kept a lot of things for themselves, Austria being a huge culprit of this. So, while some of the Klimps um, were taken out of Austria and then brought back, um, Rinish knew that, like, for the most part, the portraits never, and like the apple tree one um, landscape, never left the Belvedere, and so he ended up reaching out to the Belvedere um, and being like, hey, I have the heirs here. They want their stuff back. And the director of the Belvedere, Carl uh, Garzaroli, actually said, no, absolutely not. Um, based off Adele's will, we cannot um, return these. They are rightfully ours because Adele said that she wanted Ferdinand to give them to us upon his death. We do have confirmation that third Ferdinand has passed, so now they are rightfully ours. And unfortunately, the heirs do not have any claim to them based off of her will um is basically where it was left um and so he ended up conceding to that request um on april 12th 1948 he conceded to adele's will Renish did on april 12th 1948 um 
And it says, this concession permitted Austria not only to confirm retroactively its title to the three works of the Belvedere, but also to apply Adele's last will and testament with respect to those remaining Klimt works not yet in its possession. So all of those other landscapes that had been returned to the Austrian government but were sitting kind of in limbo, waiting for the legal paperwork to go through for the family to reclaim them, the minute that Gustav Rinisch conceded to Adele's will, because at the time, as far as I understand, he didn't have access to Ferdinand's will, I don't think anybody did, um, with that concession, they are then automatically allowed to take on the remaining portraits that are not available to them, because the concession basically says that the heirs are renouncing their claim to whatever artwork was still in con- still in contention. Um, and so not only did they get to keep the two portraits of Adele and the apple trees one, they then were able to take the rest of the Klimt um, collection for themselves. So the Belvedere's make out like bandits, essentially. The Belvedere just like gets to take everything. Um, and obviously Maria, Louise, and Robert are absolutely devastated because they're just like, they're arguing that had their aunt known about what would happen in Vienna and how the Belvedere would aid and abet the Nazis and how they would like actively participate in um, the um, defrauding of the Jewish people that she would never have donated, um, her works, her collection to them. And the museum fires back saying, well, that's all hearsay. And like, you have no way of proving that because both her and Ferdinand are dead and they were the ones that owned it. And so they absolutely refuse, um, to return them, which obviously leaves the siblings very discouraged. And Maria and Robert at that point are kind of like, this is a lost cause. Like we need to kind of like move forward with our lives in these new countries. And like Luis and um, Maria are in the US. I think Robert is in Canada. If he's not, he's in the US. And um, Maria and Robert are just of the mindset, like we have to make lives for ourselves. Like we can't live in this trauma any longer. Um, and we just have to accept defeat, whereas Louise is, like, constantly kind of trying to regain the family's property throughout the course of her life. At this point, too, there's also, like, a whole, um, porcelain collection that the Blochbauers owned, that Ferdinand owned, that is in contention, um, and the book says, um... Resigned to giving up the Klimt paintings as quid pro quo for export licenses for other artworks that the family hoped to export to Canada, Rinish turned to the Monuments Office in Austria in hopes that submitting one comprehensive application would be more advantageous than individual requests. He filed a list of all Blockbauer property that remained in Austria, including works that had been recovered as well as property that had yet to be found. To rally support, Rinish sent a copy of his application to Garzaroli, the director of the Belvedere at the time, with a succinct but unequivocal request. I hope that you will be in position to issue a favorable opinion for my clients. I rely on your sense of justice. Rinish's submission was denied outright. In the course of the next months, members of the Blochbauer family were pressed to bequeath many more objects to federal collections and to accept exchanges for works that Austria refused to release. Such transactions included the Blochbauer heirs' quote-unquote donation of 16 of a total of 150 Klimt drawings to the Albertina in 1948 and the trading of a prized work by Rudolf von Alt, the Gate of Nonnenberg Convent in Salzburg, 1887, for a lesser work by a master by the master depicting a view of the courtyard of the doge's palace in venice 
Um, and these exchanges also determined the restitution settlement with the Belvedere, um, the nature of which was characterized by Ernst as extremely beneficial for the museum. Um, and so with, once again, with the, con with the concession of the will, the heirs are then pressed by the government, like, well, the will states that all of this property should be going to the museums of Austria, and so you have to give us anything else that we find. And so they end up in this, like, awful game of trade where, like, they're, the museum has the upper hand. They've been told they're no longer having any sort of um, claim over their own property, and they have to, like, trade different art pieces based off of value and the museum's like mm, well this one could be really beneficial to our collections could be really beneficial to our visitors and our donors so we'll give you this lesser expensive one um because it is still yours we'll acknowledge that this is yours and like you can have this on our good graces because we're being so generous as to give you these things because your aunt and uncle bequeathed them to the museum which is obviously like not true if we reference back to Ferdinand's later will. So not only are they then stripped of all their property, then they are hounded by the Austrian government and the Austrian museums for more property. And when they're like, but this is technically ours, the museum makes this big show of giving them back some pieces, not all, and then distributing what they can elsewhere. What's then even worse is they end up finding um, the Kammer Castle um, piece in the collection of Gustav Ukiki. Um, he is actually the illegitimate child of Gustav Klimt, and he ended up purchasing tons of Klimt's paintings um, from Nazi art auctions during World War II. Um, and it says, in 1945, the Belvedere brokered an agreement with Ukiki regarding the painting's restitution to the Belvedere, whereby Ukiki would be permitted to keep the painting as a lifetime loan on the condition of his bequest of three other Klimt paintings to the museum upon his death. Um, Klimt paintings that he purchased during World War II from Nazi auctions that were taken from Jewish families. So, um, also just absolutely horrible. Absolutely horrifying um and the government at this point is working in tandem with the museums just to like buy up as much art as possible to furnish their um their museums and really bring back the cultural um the cultural status of austria and specifically of vienna um and so like the government is just actively using these old wills and like lack thereof of wills because people were killed and murdered in concentration camps to justify just moving artwork and cultural property to various museums and cultural institutions um, with very little say from any heirs, if there were any heirs alive at the time. So 10 years prior to 2008, when the portrait of Adele Blockbauer will finally come back to the hands of Maria Altman, the um, legislation that puts that motion, that puts that like restitution process in motion comes out in Austria and that is the 1998 Austrian Restitution Act um, and the law was then passed according to the book in response to enormous international pressure following the ensuance of a subpoena on two works by Egon Schiele as you remember um, Klimt's um, predecessor 
Portrait of Wally and Dead City 3 in January 1998 by New York District Attorney Robert M. Morgenthau following the allegations that the works had been stolen from their rightful owners during the Holocaust. Austria's reluctance to return artwork that had been appropriated um, during World War II had first exposed more than 10 years earlier in 1988 in a 22-page investigation titled A Legacy of Shame by Andrew Decker, published by New York Art News Magazine in 1984. Uh, Members of the World Jewish Congress the Committee for Jewish Claims on Austria and the U.S. Congressional Delegation that was serving in Austria at the time urged the government to reopen claims processes and ultimately agreed to the sale of any artworks that remained in public hands. Um, these negotiations were to come to fruition more than a decade later at the Mauerbach benefit sale in October 1996 when approximately a thousand artworks that had been looted from Nazis, but looted by the Nazis, were sold and the proceeds used to benefit the Austrian Holocaust survivors. So, um, this is the pivotal moment. This is the the turn in our story where the remaining Blockbauer heirs are finally going to get a chance um, to hopefully successfully restitute the portraits and the remaining Klimps back to their family. Um, and that actually comes into play um, with a major turnaround in public policy, as stated by the book, by Hubertus Serzin, who is a well-known Austrian journalist and a keen commentator on domestic affairs who turned to art restitution issues in the wake of the Sheila scandal. Um, And so he ends up being this very loud opponent to the Austrian government and what they've done with the artwork since World War II. Um, And he is very, very, very actively um, trying to expose where the government has kept artwork unlawfully or where they've distributed artwork unlawfully from Holocaust um, survivors and Holocaust heirs, um, families, uh, cultural property. So, Sersden is actually the one who unearths Adele's last will and testament um, and ends up finding more documents um, that begin to cast that doubt over whether or not the Belvedere has rightful claim um, to the Klimps from that they took from the Blockbauer family. And so he ends up finding a letter that's noted in this book that says, among these documents was a 1948 letter from the museum's director, Carl Garzaroli, who we just talked about before, who is the predecessor to Bruno Grimschitz, which includes the following passage. Since available files in the Belvedere Gallery make no mention of these facts, neither in the form of a court notice nor a notarized or personal statement by President Ferdinand Blockbauer, a statement I believe would have been your responsibility to attain, I find myself in all of a more difficult a situation. I cannot understand why even during the Nazi era, an incontestable declaration of a bequest in favor of a state-owned institution should not have been honored. In any event, the whole situation is developing into a sea serpent. Um, so this is the indication that, um, that Garza Rolli realizes that the acquisition of the Klimps was not as squeaky clean as Grimschitz had made it out to be, and that the will was unnotarized, that there were still wills in contention from Ferdinand, and that the, you know, the museum might not actually have any claim to these pieces. 
1926, the year following Adele's death, Ferdinand actually wrote, um, please note that the above-mentioned Klimt paintings are not the property of the deceased Adele Blockbauer, but rather of the widower of the deceased, Ferdinand himself. The deceased makes various requests of her spouse, who promises to fulfill these faithfully, although not necessarily compelled to do so by the will. So that's written in 1926 in regards to Adele's will. Um, and then in August of 1945, two months before Ferdinand dies, he hires an attorney in Vienna to try and regain the property um, that was lost. And this is after he wrote his last will and testament saying he renounces all of the wills and testaments um, from both him and Adele prior to that point and that he wants those... Um, those clips and all of the other artwork and possessions to go to his nieces and nephews. Um, so that, because he is the rightful owner of those, um, of those items, because it passed to him when he became, um, the widower of Adele, um, he is allowed within his right to renounce those wills. And so that's why, technically, the Belvedere cannot make claim that they own the um, Klimps because they don't, based off of the fact that the possession went to Ferdinand, and Ferdinand then, like, wiped off what was said about giving them to the Belvedere and changed his mind and wanted everything given to his nieces and nephews. So, his testimony, his last will and testament, um, are what need to be held in court because um, he is the rightful owner. At that point, um, at, like post Austrian Art Restitution Act in '98, um, Sersnin and um, a young lawyer named E. Randall Schoenberg encourage her to put forth a restitution claim for the Klimt pictures. Um, what's really interesting about Randall Schoenberg is actually is that he's the grandson of Arnold Schoenberg and. Um, he, his family, um, the Schoenbergs, and then as well as, um, his, uh, his other grandfather, they were actually friends with the Altmans, the Blockbauers, um, and so Maria actually knew Randy's, um, grandmothers and grandfathers when she was a young girl herself, and, like, they were all friends, and so she ended up hiring Randy, um, I'm referring to him as Randy because that's what she referred to him as, um, as her lawyer the following year. And that's what the whole, um, a woman in gold movie is about. Ryan Reynolds plays Randy and Helen Mirren plays Maria. Um, and they have like a really interesting relationship. Um, and it's also like a very sweet relationship between the two of them because it's not just like lawyer and client. They themselves are connected through this thread of time with Maria having known his grandparents, um, and Randy having never met his grandparents because, um, they passed away in concentration camps, um, during World War II. So there's this, like, connection there, which makes Randy, I think, all the more passionate about getting these paintings returned for Maria. So at first, Maria was actually, like, really exhausted with the whole thing, and so she told Randy that she wanted to reach an out-of-court settlement with the Belvedere, which he was not thrilled by. Like, he thought that they should go for full restitution of the paintings, but she was, at this point, she was much older. She was tired. She had kind of, at this point, given up any hope that they would actually return them or that she would be able to afford to return them because when she tried to do um, the case in Austria, the expense of the court cases was so much more than she would have been able to afford. And so she was like, you know, fine, whatever. I'm just going to try and reach a settlement with them. And they completely cold-shouldered her. It's important to note that the Belvedere at that point 
like we're we're looking so many years past World War II. They feel entitled at this point to the Klimps. Like the portrait of Adele Blockbauer is known as the Mona Lisa of Austria. And so like the portrait of Adele Blockbauer is kind of at this point tied to national identity and the Austrian government as well as the Belvedere, they don't want to give that up. Like it's a huge tourist attraction um, and it's a source of national pride now and they just don't want to have to give it to her. And so they completely ignore her request for an out of court settlement. Um, and that obviously enrages her and she goes, well, fine, then I'm going to go after you. She tries to file that claim in Vienna. She is actually met with court fees that are equivalent to 1.75 million euros. And so she's like, I absolutely cannot do that. Like she tells Randy, let's just not, let's just not try. Um, and then he ends up being encouraged by the Commission for Art Recovery, um, as well as the founder, Robert S. Lauder, who is the owner of Neue Gallery um, in New York City, to, excuse me, sorry, hiccups again, <laughs> um, he encourages him to file a claim against the Republic of Austria, but in, Republic of Austria, but in Los Angeles, so, like, make it a Supreme Court case, essentially, um, and Randy goes and does that in August of 2000, um, and Maria is, like, not convinced that it's gonna work, but at this point, she's, like, no, like, it has to work, like, I want my family's possessions back, um, and four years of litigation then focused solely on whether this claim against another sovereign state could be brought to court in the United States. Um, I'm reading now directly from Lost Lives and Lost Art. We've switched to that book. <laughs> So in June 2004, the U.S. Supreme Court confirmed conclusively that this was indeed permissible and Austria had to assume it would be confronted with a precedent-settling case against should it be convicted. Um, so instead of waiting for the for first court date in the United States, Maria Altman, on behalf of the descendants of her deceased siblings, um, because Luis and Robert had passed at this point, and in order to speed up the proceedings because she herself um, was in her 80s, let herself be convinced to take part in an out-of-court arbitration procedure in Austria, the decision of which cannot be contested. And so basically, she she was tired, you know, like, she had been working so hard, her siblings had been working so hard for years to get, like, their rightful property back. They'd been met with such nasty responses by the Belvedere, and she was just, she had enough. And so she was, like, fine, then I will do the out-of-court arbitration, I think much to the chagrin of Randy and um, Hubertus. Um, so then three legal scholars were called before an arbitration court. And so those three legal scholars, as far as I can understand, one is picked by the Belvedere, one is picked by like Randy and Maria and Hubertus, and then one is picked as a neutral party um, between the two to do the assessment on, then decide like how um, the paintings should be restituted, if at all. Um, so, once again, reading directly from the book, after wrestling with the issues, they came to the unanimous conclusion in January of 2006 that the pictures should be returned to the heirs in accordance with the Art Restitution Act of 1998. They expressly established as well that the Republic of Austria could derive no claim to ownership and certainly no title to the pictures from Adele Blochbauer's will. Um, so, victory. <laughs> um, thankfully maria was able to regain um those those pieces they ended up um they ended up uh sparking a lot of upset in austria um it's actually considered the book identifies it as a national identity crisis um and like 
the government and the museums in Austria. Like, there's all of these think pieces, there's all these news articles about how there should be a rescue attempt to buy the paintings back from Maria Altman so that, like, they can still exist in, in Austria. And, like, all of these people at the Belvedere who were giving to who were giving Maria and Randy and Hubertus this cold shoulder throughout the years of them trying to get this case recognized, um, they suddenly are like trying to play nice and convince Maria to sell it to them, and it's just like it's very very messy. There's like tons of buyback plans um, that end up going failed, um, and the Austrian government straight up tells the um, museums that they will not purchase the five restituted pieces and so Maria chooses to bring them to the United States um and that's when uh in mid-June of 2006 they auction them um and it becomes at the time uh, the most expensive painting in the world it goes for an unconfirmed 135 million to 145 million at auction and is purchased by Robert S. Lauder who is the son of Estee Lauder who is the friend who was the friend of Maria when she was younger um Maria ended up having them sold, I believe, back in the U.S. Um, with the hopes that Robert would purchase that because she wanted them to go and be in a place where the public could see them because that's what her, um, that's what her aunt and uncle wanted. For her, like she stated, it was not about, like, her having ownership of them so that she could keep them and hide them away. She wanted to, um, meet her aunt and uncle's wishes of having them available to a public but she wanted them available to a public that did not wrong her family and she felt like they should not be in Austria even though that was her birthplace because she herself um and like after like what she like felt knew of her siblings feelings towards Vienna and Austria felt that they had been failed by the country had been abused by the country because they had to flee and they had to like know that so many of their family members including their parents and uh, died and their uncle and so she was totally fine with it being available to the public she just wanted it to be available to the public on her terms um and she was friends with Estee Lauder when she was younger and so she had known Robert since he was a child um which is why she was totally fine with um it going to, um, going to Robert Lauder, um, and it was put on display in Neue Gallery, um, and has been there ever since. Um, I don't believe that it has ever been, um, loaned out from Neue Gallery, to my knowledge, but yeah, that's, that's the story of the portrait. Uh, Maria actually died, um, a couple years ago, and so she lived to see the restitution of her family's rightful property, which is just beautiful to know, um, on her terms, uh, as their remaining heir. Randy was really young at the, um, time of the case, and so this skyrocketed his career as a lawyer, and he is a very famous art restitution law, um, lawyer <laughs> now, and Hubertus, um, unfortunately passed away from cancer, um, so he is also no longer with us, but the efforts that he made to help restore, um, the heirs of the Blockbauer possessions to their rightful property, um, sorry, that sounded really silly, but the, the efforts that he made to assist Maria, um, did not go unnoticed, and they were altering, timeline altering, in terms of where the history of this piece is went, and without his efforts, um, Maria and Randy probably wouldn't have had the information needed to do that restitution, um, to p put that restitution claim forward. 
so yeah, that is the story of the portrait of Adele Blockbauer, the story of Adele and Ferdinand of Maria and the Blockbauer clan as a whole and the subsequent restitution post-World War II. Um, I really appreciate you guys sticking around for this hour and a half long episode. Um, I know it was a long one, but I hope that you really took interest with it. I know that it is super important to me and I care about this piece and the history around it immensely. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Art to Finish on Instagram. And also this pod is on all streaming services, so Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. If you have questions about today's episode, you can shoot me a DM on the Art to Finish um, Instagram, or you can comment um, on the Instagram post today for the announcement of this episode. So feel free if you ever want to get in contact to do that there. And I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Hopefully no Sunday scaries. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to learn about the girls of gold, Adele Blockbauer and Maria Altman, and the ways in which this uh, restitution case and these climped pieces really shaped the way that restitution law has changed and has evolved moving forward post-World War II. Have a great day, guys. Bye. 